So we're continuing our study on the Ten Commandments. We have uh, called the series uh, Building on Bedrock. I'll explain that in a few moments, how we came up with that, Building on Bedrock. But in prepping for this uh, Fifth Commandment tonight that we're going to look at, I uh, did a little research on the great molasses flood of 1919 that hit Boston. You remember this. You probably never heard of it. I'd never heard of it. There is a plaque on 529 Commercial Street in Boston that says this. On January 15, 1919, a molasses tank, a five-story molasses tank, at 529 Commercial Street exploded under pressure, killing 21 people. A 40-foot wave of molasses, molasses, buckled the elevated railroad tracks, crushed buildings, and inundated the neighborhood. Structural defects in the tank combined with unseasonably warm temperatures contributed to the disaster. Here is a picture. Can you see that? I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like the pictures of the tsunami that hit Japan. I, I mean, it's just wreck It's devastation. And it's molasses. A 40-foot wall of molasses. It was, it was devastating. Another paragraph. Ultimately, the disaster killed 21 people and injured another 150. About half of the victims were crushed by the wave or drowned in the molasses the day of the incident. Now, this article is from some science journal I came across, uh, and it, it was a study this guy did on non-Newtonian fluid. How did I find this? I have no idea. But it kind of came up, and I thought, what is this? I've never heard of this. Uh, he basically makes a statement, a wave of molasses does not behave like a wave of water. It's because of the, vis the viscosity, because of the thickness. He actually here talks about the fact that when you take non-Newtonian fluids, such as ketchup, toothpaste, uh, whipped cream. In a stationary bottle, these fluids are thick and goopy and do not chip much if you tilt the container one way or another. But when you squeeze or smack the bottle, applying stress and increasing the shear rate, the fluids suddenly flow. Because of this physical property, a wave of molasses is even more devastating than a typical tsunami. Now, how can that be? Well... A man immersed in molasses will not get anywhere trying to swim his way out. Why? Because of the thickness. It's like concrete that is settling. And he goes on and says, the natural thing, you got a wave of molasses, and some guys were trying to swim their way out. But because of the viscosity, because of the thickness, they, you would take a stroke, and it was though you had not taken a stroke. You would stroke, and you would make absolutely no progress. It was utter confusion. It was utter mayhem, and it was utter calamity. Why do I bring this up? We're living in a culture right now where we are swimming in a sea of subjectivity. Subjectivism 
uh, if you get an ethics book and you look in the index or in the back, you can look up, you'll see subjectivism because it's a particular form of ethics. What subjectivism is, it is, um, it, it teaches that there are no objective moral truths. John Steinbeck in The Grapes of Wrath, it's quite a movie, it's quite a book about the Dust Bowl and the people who went out to California to try to make a living. One of the characters said, there ain't no sin and there ain't no virtue. There's just stuff people do. No virtue, no sin. That's subjectivism. This Dust Bowl guy didn't even know the term, but he believed it. Subjectivism teaches that there, is no, there are no objective moral truths. The Ten Commandments teaches the exact opposite. The exact opposite. As we've been doing the study on the Ten Commandments, um, tonight we get to Exodus 20, 12, and we're going to talk about the whole issue. The issue we're going to look at tonight and probably into next week is the whole issue of authority. Authority. It's all based around the fifth commandment, which in Exodus 20, verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. If you look at different commentaries, Oftentimes, the title of the chapter won't specifically refer to honoring parents, but it refers to respecting authority. Why would that be? Let me give you two premises as we start tonight. So, so we're surrounded by a culture uh, it, to use another metaphor, it's we're swimming in a sea of subjectivity. There are no objective moral truths. But there are. God says. We used another metaphor earlier in the study that we must learn to overcome the hyperinflation of evil and lawlessness that surrounds us by returning to the gold standard of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are God's morals, moral law for all people in all nations and all cultures. You say, well, what about the people that in their culture they don't have a Bible? Romans 2 says that God has written the law in their hearts. No one is without excuse. Romans 1 says the same thing. Two premises. Number one, our premise is that there is objective moral truth and that it comes from the character and authority of the Lord God Almighty. Earlier, we looked at the fact that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments have been the basis of Western civilization. The Ten Commandments are still chiseled in marble in the Supreme Court. This country was not built on, you know, laws are built on something. And if you're for a certain law and someone doesn't like it, they'll say, oh, you're just trying to legislate your morality. Every law legislates somebody's morality. The question is, whose morality is being legislated? So if you go back and look at the history of this nation, and, and different people want, you know, this is a totally Christian, listen, Everyone in this nation never has been a Christian. I mean, we all know that. But the foundation, let's put it this way. The foundation of our laws didn't come from Eastern mysticism. They didn't come from the Koran. They came from the Bible. The three branches of government come out of Isaiah. Um, 
the scripture was used. That's why the Ten Commandments are found all over, and we've been fine with that until recently. Okay. Those commandments are based on the character of God and the authority of God. God is the standard. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's ab- and God, there, God is absolutely morally pure. And this is what he says to us as to how we shall live. Um, go to Deuteronomy 4, and then we'll get to the second premise. In Deuteronomy 5, you've got the Ten Commandments stated again. But in Deuteronomy 4, verse 39, here's what God says. Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. He's the only God. He's the only God. John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Our God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. There is no other. 40. Watch this. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today. Watch this. That it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God has given you for all time. Our culture is in rebellion to this. But this is the best way to live. This is the best of all possible options. Hands down. Nothing comes even close. God gave us this not to restrict us, not because he's a killjoy, not because he doesn't want us to have any fun or to enjoy life. It's just the opposite. He wants us to be to enjoy his favor and his mercy and his grace. He wants us to be fulfilled with our work and, and sense his pleasure in our, not only in our work, but in our families. It's always best to do it his way. He created life, he created us, he knows what's best. What do we know? Not much. Second premise. We are surrounded by lawlessness and rebellion to the God who gave us the Ten Commandments. Yes, we are. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 that in the last days, lawlessness will increase. That's why we use the term hyperinflation. It's lawlessness and evil is, it's almost doubling daily. Like uh, hyperinflation in Venezuela or something. Philip Ryken is now the president of Wheaton College. Before he took that post, he was pastor at 10th Presbyterian in downtown Philadelphia. Um, He followed the ministry of James Montgomery Boyce. Many of you have appreciated his his work, great preacher. Prior to, to Boyce, decades earlier, Donald Gray Barnhouse a great expositor of the Word of God was in that pulpit. Uh, Riken did a commentary in Exodus about that thick. This is the section on the Ten Commandments. I would have brought the big one, but I couldn't get it in my, my, uh, my bag because I had other ones that big. I, I want to read a little of this to you because it's so well thought out and reasoned. Many historians believe that a significant shift in America, American attitudes towards authority took place during the 1960s. And if uh, you weren't smoking dope, you might remember the 60s. (laughs) David Crosby said, I was around in the 60s, but I don't remember it. A lot of us remember it. It was the decade of the anti-establishment. Young people were anti-business, anti-government, anti-military, and anti-school. But of all the institutions that came under attack, perhaps the most significant was the family. Anne Gottlieb is one of many participants who identify 
the 60s as the generation that destroyed the American family. And you stop and think about what happened in the 60s, and this is correct. The American family was pretty much intact up until the 60s. Divorce was frowned upon by Christians and non-Christians. But we really got earthquaked in the 60s, particularly in 68. And uh, if you ever been in an earthquake, there are aftershocks. The good thing usually is that when there's an earthquake, there are aftershocks, but they diminish. Not the earthquake of the 60s. They're still with us. By the way, the kids that were in the streets in the 60s are now in D.C. and in the state capitals. The inmates are running the asylum. They've just cut their hair and changed their clothes. And got lived rights. We, no, we might not have been able to tear down the state, but the family was closer. We could get our hands on it. And we believe that the family was the foundation of the state as well as the collective state of mind. She's right. We believe the family was the foundation of the state. They couldn't get the state, so let's get the family. It's the foundation. We truly believe that the family had to be torn apart to free love, which alone could heal the damage done when the atom was split to release energy. And the first step was to tear ourselves free from our parents. End of quote. What makes Gottlieb's analysis so chilling is the connection she draws between the family and the state. Riken says she's right. The way to destroy a nation is to destroy the family. And the way children can destroy the family is by disobeying their parents. He goes on. By the way, what, what, what does that command say? We read Exodus 20. If you're still in Deuteronomy, if you look at Deuteronomy 5, you can look at verse 16 where it was restated. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Honor your father and mother. Don't rebel honor. We'll get to that in a moment. Reichen goes on. God's plan for preserving the family calls for keeping the fifth commandment, the one we just read. The placement of this commandment shows the special importance of the family. When God gave his law, he wrote it down on two tablets. That's in Exodus 31, verse 18. They were two tablets of stone. So, the series title that I came up with was Building on Bedrock, because the Ten Commandments, which were written on stone, are bedrock. They're bedrock. Foundations are critical. Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we're watching the foundations being destroyed in the nation. Well, you just keep building your foundation and following Christ. That's what you do. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus talked in Matthew 7 about two men. He talked about the foolish man and he talked about the wise man. The foolish man, it, and it's all about foundations. The foolish man built his house on the sand and the storms came and the wind blew and and uh, his house went down. Talked about the wise man. But the wise man built his house on the rock, on the stone, on the bedrock. And the storms came, habit, calamity, and the house was fine. He who hears these words of mine and does them, Jesus says, is like the wise man. Because you see, Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. 
He's our foundation. He gave the Ten Commandments. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you're built on the authority of the Word of God, if you're building your house, your life, your family, your business, if you're building on the foundation of the Word of God, you're secure. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It's one of the benefits of being raised in church. These old hymns, gospel songs, come flying through your head. Yeah. Back to Riken. When God gave his law, he wrote it down on two tablets. Most likely, this means that he provided Moses with two copies. This was customary in ancient times whenever two parties established a covenant. Or perhaps the law was divided into two parts. Traditionally, the first four commandments are distinguished from the last six. So we looked at the first three, then we looked at the Sabbath. Now we're on five. The first four are about the Lord and loving the Lord. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take my name in vain. And the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant for the Jews in Exodus 31. But listen to what Riken says. The first four commandments are distinguished from the last six. The first table of the law consists of the four commandments that govern our response to God. The second table consists of the commandments, the six commandments that govern the way we treat one another. Obviously, our human relationships cannot be separated from our relationship to God, but there is a distinction. The first four commandments teach us to love God. The last six teach us to love our neighbor. Matthew 22, uh, an attorney asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And the second is as the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he clip-noted the Ten Commandments into two. He summarized them. Okay? If we analyze the Ten Commandments this way, then the second table of the law would begin with the Fifth Commandment. Honor your, your father and mother. Stay with me here. This is significant. In telling us how to treat one another, God starts with our families. Loving our neighbor starts at home. Just as the relationship with Yahweh is the beginning of the covenant, so this relationship between parents and children is the beginning of society. The inevitable point of departure for every human relationship. The first relationship beyond the relationship with Yahweh, who according to the Old Testament is the giver of life, is the relationship to father and to mother, who together are channels of Yahweh's gift of life. No other human relationship is so fundamental and none is so important. One more paragraph. Augustine emphasized the importance of the fifth commandment by posing a rhetorical question. He asked, if anyone fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? Presumably not, because the relationship between parent and child is the first and primary relationship, the beginning of all human society. Under ordinary circumstances, the first people a child knows are his parents. Watch this. God intends the family to be our first hospital, our first school, our first government, our first church. If we do not respect authority at home, we will not respect it anywhere else. It's very wise. Al Moeller, who's president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, also makes a good point on this. We think we are familiar with this commandment because it has the ring of the familiar. Most of us have heard it like this since we were children. Honor your father and your mother equals obey dad and mom. That is the depth of our understanding of the commandment, and it is a correct understanding, 
though woefully incomplete. We live in an age of intentional orphans. What does he mean by that? All around us are people who would disregard and disrespect their patrimony, their inheritance from their parents, moral inheritance, spiritual inheritance, okay? Who would reject the tradition and throw off all the inheritance of father and mother in order to be as orphans. The modern psychotherapeutic community tells us that we must kill off our parents if we are to be authentic selves and grow into true adulthood. Abraham Lincoln spoke to this when he told the parable of a man on trial for murdering his parents who then threw himself on the mercy of the court claiming he was now an orphan. This generation is much like that. A generation that rejects its own inheritance and is marked by rebelliousness and rootlessness. It is a generation cut off from tradition, culture, wisdom, experience, and truth. It is inconceivable to the worldview of the scripture that we would dishonor our father and mother and orphan ourselves. This is a fundamental block of all human society, this fifth commandment. So we had two premises, now I got four questions. First question is this, what does it mean to honor? When it says honor your father and mother, what does that mean? It is an attitude of the heart that esteems both mother and both father and mother as having value. I used to subscribe to Sports Illustrated. I remember the day in 1988 at my kitchen table where I was going through the mail and I got this copy of Sports Illustrated and there was an article in there called The Morning Anchor. Morning spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, as in morning. The Morning Anchor, Bryant Gumbel is alone at the top with the memory of his late father. This is when Bryant Gumbel was at the absolute top. Uh, and they go through, it's a long article, it's 19 pages. Uh, extremely successful, brilliant guy, extremely articulate. When he did his first um, audition on camera for NBC, uh, he was quoting statistics and lineups of the Yankees 35 years ago, and they were blown away. And the guy was brilliant. He loved his father, absolutely adored his father. His father was quite a man. But I remember reading, the, I remember reading when uh, it got to his mother, um, he sure honored his father, but his mother, who was 68, it says 98 degrees in Chicago, she's got all the windows open in her seventh floor apartment. She's got an air conditioner in the bedroom, but it's not enough to cool the whole apartment. She would go somewhere cooler if she had the energy or a car, but she has neither. Five mornings a week, she takes the bus to her job as a city clerk. Plenty are the days she wishes she could afford to retire. And her son is one of the wealthiest sons in the entertainment sports world. It goes on, I won't read it all, and then later on it comes back to the mom. This says, honor your father and your mother. He didn't do that. He just flat out didn't do it. What are the reasons? I have no idea. But he didn't do it. I've never forgotten this article. I read this in 88. I thought about it again this morning. Looked it up, there it was. What does it mean to honor? It is an attitude of the heart that esteems both father and mother as having value. To honor is to respect, esteem, value, and defend their well-being. So um, we moved 20 miles or so between my freshman and 
sophomore year, that summer. So I start, I'm starting a new high school my sophomore year. And, uh, you know, new kid, new school, you don't know anybody. And uh, so I'm playing uh, basketball in a morning PE class. And the football coach comes up to me and he says, um, he said, son, how come you're not, how come you're not out for varsity basketball? And I said, well, because my dad um, has a rule about academics and I didn't live up to it. He said, what's his rule? I, I said, his rule is that I gotta get all C's. And I got one D. He said, really? And I said, yeah. Well, anyway, he talked to the varsity basketball coach. And a couple days later, the varsity basketball coach comes up to me and says, hey, uh, we ought to have you out. And I said, yeah, my dad, he says, yeah, the coach told me. He said, what is that again? And I said, well, my dad wants me to, not all A's, just all C's. And I got one D. And he said, well, the school says you're, you can still play. I said, yeah, but my dad doesn't. He said, I'm going to call your dad. Now, he was a big, pretty good-sized guy, and he was kind of gruff, and he, okay. He thought he was hot stuff. Well, and he thought he was going to talk my dad into this. Well, here's the thing. My dad, I, I've mentioned my dad before. Uh, my dad never talked about his athletic career. I didn't know anything about it until I came across this high school yearbook in my grandma's garage. And I saw that he'd been all state in football and basketball. His team had gone undefeated, won the state championship, gone, I think, 32 and 0. It was Hoosiers, but Nebraska. And then he went on and got a scholarship, played basketball at Wyoming with Kirk Gowdy. Some of you guys are. Remember Kurt Dowdy, who was an All-American guard. My dad loved sports. My dad was pretty good at sports. Uh, this guy's going to call my dad and talk my dad in. I thought, yeah, right. And uh, my dad never mentioned a thing about it. But about three days later, I'm walking into the locker room after PE, and here comes that basketball coach, and he said, he said, hey, Farrar. I said, yeah. He said, yeah, I talked to your father, and uh, he wouldn't move. And I said, yeah, I, yeah, I figured that. And he said, I, I just, he said, I can't believe that. And I said, well, that's how it is. And he said, well, that's unbelievable. He said, I'll tell you this, I don't have any respect for your father. And I said, well, I do. And I'll tell you what, I will never play for you. And I never did. I mean, I wasn't that good anyway. <laughs> I wasn't playing for that jerk. He thought, he, you know, some rowdy blocker. Hey, listen. I'm a 15-year-old airhead, and I got more brains than you do. My dad is absolutely right. There is no reason for me not to get a C in every, not A's, not Dean's list, just get all C's or above. I got all, I got one D. That's on me. I wouldn't play for that guy. He said the wrong thing. He, he, he dishonored my dad. I believed in the Ten Commandments. And I still do. Sometimes you take a stand and sometimes it might cost you. That's all right. Honor your father and mother. So good old J.I. Packer in his little book, uh, Keeping the Ten Commandments, 
What does it mean to honor your father and mother? He says, first, the family is the basic, basic social unit. No nation is stable or virile where family life is weak. Isn't that true? Second, the family is the basic spiritual unit in which God makes parents their children's pastors and teachers. We'll talk about this more next week. Third, children do in fact owe their parents a huge debt of gratitude for years of care and provision. Fourth, children need parental guidance more than they know and impoverish themselves by rejecting it. The long life promised in Exodus 20:12 and Deuteronomy 5:16 to those who honor their parents is not guaranteed to any Christian, but it remains true that children who flout their parents suffer great loss. They forfeit a degree of human maturity and make it harder for themselves to honor a God in heaven. Fifth, in pre-social security days, the aged had only their own children to provide for them, and even in the welfare state, aging parents need their children's loving concern just as the children once needed their parents' care. He goes on and says, none of this, of course, justifies parental tyrannizing or possessiveness or requires children to bow to either. Ephesians 6 says, uh, Colossians 3 says, do not exasperate your children. You must not goad your children to resentment, but give them the instruction, correction, which belong to a Christian upbringing. Also, Ephesians 6.4. Why do you esteem them? They're your parents. They deserve honor. They're in authority over you. They're not perfect. You will not be perfect in your parenting. There is a promise, and Packer referred to it, and I'm going to go back to Riken here, and then we're going to make some practical observations. Um, so I'm in Deuteronomy 5 here, verse 16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you. Watch this that your days may be prolonged and then it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Same thing, that's in Exodus 20. Both times this is mentioned. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Um, Philip Ryken helps us with this. Here's what he says. The general promise should not be taken as an automatic guarantee that children who obey their parents will live to be 90. Nor does it necessarily mean that someone who dies young is guilty of breaking the fifth commandment. For reasons concerning his greater glory, God sometimes allows people to meet what we consider an untimely end, even if they almost always obey their parents. There are many providences that determine the length of a person's life. Number one, the length of your life is set before you are born. Psalm 31, as for me, I say that you, as for me, I say that you are my God. I trust in you, O Lord. My times are in your hand. Hebrews says it is appointed for a man once to die and then comes judgment. Proverbs, uh, Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance when he was in the womb. And in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So your lifespan is determined before you're even conceived by Almighty God. Here it helps to know that when the Bible talks about living long in the land, it's not simply talking about how old people are when they die. The expression live long in the land is a Hebrew phrase for the fullness of God's blessing. It means to have an abundant life. It means that during your lifespan, if you're one who honors your parents, you will have the favor of God on your life. That's what it means. Okay? Michael Horton, who's also written on the Ten Commandments, and I did not bring his book. But Horton is a prof at Westminster Seminary in California. 
uh, in his section on this commandment, he talks about being raised in California. His, his parents uh, had a rest home, and their home was attached to the rest home. And he said, I could well remember Christian people, pastors, bringing their aging, par aging parents to our home, and then we'd hardly ever see them again. I can remember Christmas time, my mom going out shopping, not for our family, but for those elderly, dear people whose Christian children had for the most part forgotten them. That's dishonoring and it's not right. Honor your father and your mother. Uh, I got a third question. Is the fifth commandment affirmed in the New Testament? The answer is yes, it is. And now I'm going to pull out oh, our buddy Wayne Grudem. Grudem says this, the Apostle Paul quite clearly affirms this commandment as applicable to all people for all time, not only for the nation of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. For example, he says that one of the sins of Gentiles who do not know God is that they are disobedient to parents. That's in Romans 1.30, it's in 2 Timothy 3.2. When speaking of people who were lawless and disobedient, Watch this, he includes those who strike their fathers and mothers. 1 Timothy 1.9. You never allow a little child to strike you. You don't do it. Because all you're doing is giving them the okay to strike you later. That's not how it's done. That doesn't honor parents. That's not a, that's defiance. Defiance. Ephesians 6, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may, watch this, go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is real practical stuff, but we, I mean, look around, look at our culture, look at where we are. This is fundamental bedrock stuff. Uh, it comes down to authority. It comes down to what God has said. It, it comes down to giving honor to whom honor is due. But we live in a culture that is swimming in the sea of subjectivism and really where we are as a culture is that we say there is no objective moral fact Yet there is, and we know there is, because it's written on our hearts. And those who, who, um, those who are lawless, it's interesting, let someone steal their car. And watch the reaction. Suddenly they're very concerned about law. Suddenly they're very concerned about truth. Suddenly, they're very concerned about justice. Fourth question. And uh, this is why I'm going to keep going on this next week. It's just too big of a topic. Um, so, as a general principle, we get this honor. Your father and your mother, we understand it. We're Christian people. It makes sense. Uh, it's right. It's decent. It's civil. God has commanded it. But over the years, I have had conversations with different people, and they struggle with this because of the 
situation because of the home in which they were raised. So this question, number four, would be how do you honor a father or mother who is in continual sin? Uh, I, I remember years and years ago talking with a guy and at a conference center and just, just the two of us. And he was telling me about his struggle with homosexuality over the years. And very genuine guy. I really liked him. And I, I said, well, at a certain point, I said, tell me, about, uh, tell me about your background. Tell me about the home in which you were raised. And he just started shaking his head. He said, my memory of my father is him coming home drunk, beating my mother, and spreading feces on her face. Many, 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 many times. I talked with another guy, another state, another place. His father, who supposedly believed the Bible, so Bruce Waltke, great Old Testament professor, I really appreciate his wisdom here. Speaking on this commandment, he says, nevertheless, the command raises two questions. How long are children under parental authority and are children to obey ungodly parents? With regard to the former, two ideas need to be held in tension. The first is that as long as one lives in the parent's home, that person is under the authority of the parent. He cites Numbers 30. In the patriarchal society of the Old Testament, the children remained under the patriarch's authority as long as the patriarchs lived. But the New Testament does not reinforce that social structure. I had a man say to me a while back that he was speaking of his five uh, children in their 60s and 50s and their spouses and their children, he, he said, I am the head of my family as in the Old Testament. Now, I had another point I wanted to make to him, so I let it pass. But he was dead wrong on that. But that's how he operated. He, I mean, he's just a Venezuelan dictator. Holding the Bible. Weeping when he prays to Jesus. He's a fraud. He's just a fraud. He's abandoned his wife in her old age. Wouldn't allow doctors, nurses to come in in the assisted care facility and treat her. He didn't want to be bothered. She was not given a bath for six months. And he's in the bedroom writing theological books about the inerrancy of the Bible and the Lordship of Christ. The stench of the self-righteousness makes you want to vomit. 
How do you honor somebody like that? It's really, really hard. It's very difficult. On the other hand, Walt, he says, as persons mature, they come to stages or rites of passage where they take on their own accountability and decision-making. Godly parents seek the well-being of their children first, not their own selfish interest. In that love, they know when to allow their children more freedom to grow into full maturity. Um, which is part of being a parent. When your kids are six and seven and eight, you handle them one way, but when they're 36, 37, and 38, you handle them another way. Why? Because they're adults. They have their own homes. They have their own. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So is the relationship still there? Yeah, but it's different, and you got to be mindful of that. Okay. With regard to the second question, what was the second question? Are children to obey ungodly parents? Note first that Jesus put allegiance to himself before allegiance to parents. Matthew 8.20 and Mark 1.20. In Matthew 10.37, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So if a father says, I want you to kill your brother, you don't do it. Because your first obligation is to honor God, and God says, you shall not murder. It's just like with the government. We're under the authority of the government, Romans 13. God's appointed the governing authorities. We want to be good citizens. We want to submit. But when the government tells us to disobey God, we draw the line. And as the apostle said in, in Acts, you decide for yourselves, shall we obey you or God? Or Nebuchadnezzar says to the, he, the three Hebrew guys, bow down and worship, or I'm going to throw you in that fire. Oh, king, we don't even need to give you an answer on this. This is no-brainer. Have you got authority over us? Yeah. But God's the ultimate authority. We honor him first. Note also the commandment is addressed to young and old alike. By their comportment, adults give a model to children on submitting to authority. The commandment entails parents who, like God, have authority by virtue and not by force. It does not have in view parents who tyrannize their children. God's authority does not stand behind vice. Paul and the wisdom tradition have in mind godly parents who themselves live under God's rule. Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 8. Not ungodly parents who rebel against God's authority. As God's representatives, not as rebels against God, they are to be revered. Did you get that? They're in submission to the Lord God, they're to be revered. Thomas Watson, in his, the, the Puritan pastor, in his book on the Ten Commandments, he says there are different kinds of fathers. Job ruled in the gates. Job said he was a father to the poor. He was a, um, if you will, he was a magistrate. He, had, he was a political father. He governed. Thank God for the Daniels in government. And there... They're, they're, they're there. They're just outnumbered. But thank God for the godly. In the Old Testament, kings were referred to, in Isaiah 49, kings are referred to as fathers. David was king, but he, he functioned as a father to the nation. Josiah functioned as a father. Hezekiah functioned as a father. He nurtured them. 
He cared for them. He loved them. He did what was best for them. Not perfectly. They're flawed men. So that's one type of father. We have our natural fathers. We have spiritual fathers. Paul was a spiritual father to some. Someone had an influence in your life and brought you to Christ. They're, they're, they're for all intents and purposes, a spiritual father. You've become a spiritual father to others that you've taught and discipled and spent time with and pointed them to Christ and the Word of God. You see? And then Watson talks about our aged fathers, the gray-haired fathers, our grandpas, our great-grandpas, who are to be reverenced not only for their age, but if they know Christ, they are to be reverenced for their hearts and for their godly example. That's what we want to be, guys. That's what we want to be. When you die, your funeral should not be awkward on your family. But if you're a double-minded man and a hypocrite and a spiritual fraud, it's going to be awkward. They either got to get up and lie or nobody gets up. You don't want that. It, it, it's tough when you've got a father or a mother who are in, uh, who are not teachable, who have hard hearts, are in continual sin. H how do you honor them? Um, it it actually happened in Second Samuel twelve. You have a situation. This is where David. In 2 Samuel 11, he gets into adultery with Bathsheba. But in 2 Samuel 12, and he covers it for about a year, as best he can, although it had gotten out. I mean, you know. But there was no social media. So Nathan the prophet shows up. Let me say this to you. Dysfunctional families don't deal with reality. If there's an elephant in the room, deal with it. If it's a Christian home that names the name of Christ and there's deep embedded sin, it has to be confronted. Nathan, very wisely, is going to, very wisely, is going to approach David about his sin. He tells David a story about a man who was fabulously wealthy, had thousands and thousands of sheep. And then he tells David about one man, very poor, who had one little lamb. And the wealthy man came and took the one little sheep from the poor man. And David came out of the throne and says, who is that man? And Nathan looked at him and said, you are the man. And David broke and he repented. Read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Repentance Psalms of David. Thomas Watson said, repentance is the vomiting of the soul. It's the dry heaves of the soul. You ever heard someone say, well, I apologize if I was wrong. <laughs> if. That's worthless. That's utterly worthless. You ever had the dry heaves? What a wonderful experience that is. That's repentance. It's the vomiting of the soul. That's what David did when he was confronted. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Create in me a new heart, O Lord. He didn't minimize it. He didn't cover it up. He just came clean. I'm a sinner. So Don Carson has written this, and I think I'm going to close with it, I think. He's doing, 
He has a daily devotional that I read called For the Love of God. It's very good. He's talking about when David transferred authority to his son uh, Solomon, 1 Kings 1. Um, and he talks about David's chronic family failure. And he says there are lessons here for leaders. Fathers are leaders. Just one paragraph. First, even gifted and morally upright believers commonly manifest tragic flaws. Occasionally a Daniel arises, of whom no failure is recorded, but most of the best in scripture betray flaws of one sort or another. Abraham, Moses, Peter, Thomas, not the least, David. The reality must be faced, for it is no less potent today. God raises up strategically placed and influential leaders. The odd one is so consistent that it's very difficult to detect any notable fault line, but usually this is not the case. Even the finest of our Christian leaders commonly display faults that their closest peers and friends can spot, whether or not the leaders themselves can see them. This should not surprise us. In this fallen world, it is the way things are, the way things were when the Bible was written. We should therefore not be disillusioned when leaders prove flawed. We should support them wherever we can. Seek to correct the faults where possible and leave the rest to God, all the while recognizing the terrible potential for failures and faults in our own lives. When there is a consistent sin in a family, in a father, a grandfather, those who should be modeling truth, you need the wisdom of Nathan to deal with it, but it must be dealt with. My dad had a lot of flaws, but I'll tell you one thing that I loved about my dad is that he would, he would listen. He would listen. I could go and talk to him and he'd listen to me. And on, I, I can think of three occasions where I went to my dad and I was either 18 or 19 or older. And I said, Dad, I'm concerned about something. Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if any of you are caught in any trespass, let those who are spiritual. That can sound weird. But it's not weird. Because we all get trapped in sin. Brethren, if any of you are caught in any trespass, let those who are spiritual restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Because what you see in your brother could easily happen to you. It, you're, you're trying to restore, you're trying to help. And I remember going to my dad and said, Dad, I don't know if you see this, but I'm concerned about something. He said, well, Steve, what is it? And I, I told him. And you know what I loved about him and what I respected about him? He never got mad, he never got angry, he never got defensive, never. He just listened to me. And he, said, and he said, well, I really appreciate your coming to me and telling me that. That means a lot to me. I'll take care of it. And he did. Now my dad's with the Lord. Now I'm the patriarch. I am, I'm the oldest, male. Last year, my niece came to me. She had tears in her eyes, and she said, Steve, can I talk to you about something? I said, no, I'm busy. <laughs> I said, sure. And she brought up something that was very deep in her heart. And I said, I really, appreciate your talking to me about this. That means a bunch to me. I'll follow up on it. And I'll let you know as soon as I do. 
I want my kids to be able to come to me. I want my wife to come to me without fear of, you know what I'm saying. They don't expect us to be perfect, but I think they expect us to be honest. Isn't that what you expect of those that have had an impact on you? Sure. Let's pray. Father, we're all under authority. We've had good bosses, we've had bad bosses. Um, some of us have had fathers that have been a delight. Others have had, of us have had fathers that have just uh, destroyed us and others. But now we're adult men with responsibilities. We ask that you would help us to be your men and to be men who are in submission to you and honor you first. Give us teachable hearts and teachable spirits so that we can lead well and wisely and have harmony in our homes and enjoy your favor as long as we are on the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.